Bandwidth for Cloth Talk is provided by the Scout History Project. Join us at the Scout History Project at www.scouthistory.net. Cloth Talk, number 19, Uniformity. Well, welcome to Cloth Talk. I'm Tim Hall, and with me here online is Ben Killen and Chris Brightwell. How how are you doing, guys? (laughs) Pretty good. Yeah, doing pretty good. Um, I'm having deja vu right now, but that's okay. Um, Last last episode, I think I talked a little bit about uh, going home and and me and my dad driving a truck 22 hours back up here to bring all my stuff in the apartment. Well, it's all here, but I'm afraid to say that my room is... Not really presentable at this point. Um, I would I would probably have to liken it to uh, like a quartermaster's hut or something like that. <laughs> I would say a pigsty, but <laughs> I was trying to be diplomatic, uh, but okay, whatever. <laughs> so did you did you show your roommate your collection, your patch collection? Yeah, I did because I I brought I finally brought my patches up here and. Uh, Last night, as a matter of fact, I, you know, those big, huge, like, Rubbermaid containers that you get, like, you could probably fit, like, like, oh, I don't know what it would be yeah, something. They're a little, uh, little smaller than a casket, yeah. Yeah, you could probably <laughs> yeah. cram that in there. <laughs> yeah, probably, maybe that's where he's been all this time. But anyway, uh, I have one of those, and it's completely full of patches. And I was like, you see that thing right there? That is full of patches. And I'm not even, like, a big collector. And he's like, whoa. <laughs> so, so uh, Chris, you, they're all here now. Yeah. So. Yeah. So you, you're you're sorting through patches as you as you do it. So that's yeah. good. Chris, did you uh, survive exam week? Yeah, man. Finals are done. I'm free for four weeks. Four weeks. You're yep, free so, for four weeks. So it'll be lots of wiki work, and I've got blinds to hang and a curtain rod to hang and some house cleaning to do. But school's out for a month, so I'm good to go. Oh, that's great. Well, coming up later in the show, we've got Mitch Reese, who wrote the book literally on the Scout uniform and its history. He's got uh, at least five different publications out there, and we'll talk about it. Uh, man, he he really uh, interesting interview, interesting individual. Uh, uh, just uh, some great stories coming up from uh, from Mitch Reese. So uh, we look forward to hearing that. While Chris is warming up the computer and getting it pointed to the right place for a wiki tip, let me take this time to say thanks to a lot of the internationals out there that are listening. We, I look at the web, web logs almost every day, and uh, we're getting quite a few internationals that are listening from Germany, from uh, Hungary, uh, Taiwan, Finland, Argentina, India, Australia, the United Kingdom, the Czech Republic, the Russian Federation, Malaysia, Sri Lanka, uh, Lebanon, and Canada. And, of course, everyone here in the United States. Oh, let me include the outlying uh, U.S. military, too. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And, uh, you know, we would love to do some more on the international side of the house. Uh, if anyone has any resources or you're available, we do a lot of our interviews over the Internet. So there's uh, practically no telephone charges at all. We can tell you how to connect up with us uh, very easily. Please email us, clothtalk at clothtalk.com. And Chris, I believe that email goes to all three of us simultaneously, right? That's Yeah, it does. So anybody, for any reason you need to get in touch with the Cloth Talk gang, it's clothtalk at clothtalk.com. 
Chris, you got a wiki tip for us? I sure do. Uh, last episode, I promised, I, I showed everybody, or I guess I told everybody how to do a search for an article or search for content to an article. And I sort of promised that I would tell you how to start a page. So this episode, I'm sort of, I'm going to try to walk you through how to start a page on the wiki. So first things first, you want to make sure nobody else has done the page. So you go to scouthistory.net, you click on the wiki logo, you go to the search box, you type in your little search, and you hit go. And if there's something in the wiki that matches your search, it'll show up. If there's not, it'll say there's no page titled, and then whatever you searched for, but you can create this page. So there's two things you want to do. You want to make sure that, first of all, the in the little quotes where it says, you know, what you searched for, you want to make sure that's going to be the title of your page. And then you can go ahead and create on create this page. And then it'll pop up with this little text editor that looks kind of like, you know, most word processors and that it's a, a place for you to type and buttons for you to click to kind of format the text. And the basic article has a few key elements. It has uh, an overview, like a, an introductory paragraph. Some people know this as an executive summary. Um, and then below that, it has a table of contents, which we'll get to in a second. And then it has a bunch of headings with content. So the first thing you want to do is you want to create that little introductory paragraph to say, you know, just a high level, here's what this page is about. Uh, you know, if you have a lodge, you'll say, lodge number, you know, Kaskinapu Lodge 310 is the Order of the Arrow Lodge chartered by Tennessee Valley Council, blah, 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 blah. So that'll be your introductory paragraph. And then below that, you're not going to make the table of contents because the software will create the table of contents for you. But what you want to do is you want to create a heading. And I think one of these buttons will do it, but I'm not sure. If you hover over the buttons, it'll tell you what, which, which button does what. So you have a button for bold, you have a button for italic, you have a button for links, you have a button for embedding an image. But the, real, the easiest way to create a, uh, a top-level heading is you do equal sign, equal sign, and then the name of your heading, and then equal sign, equal sign. And what that'll do is that'll create, I think it's called a level one heading in the, in the documentation when you start looking for it. And you create enough headings. So you create one, one heading, and then you create a subheading, which is three equal signs, and the name of the subheading, and then you close it with three equal signs, and you can have a sub-subheading which is four equal signs. And I think it stops at four. I don't think there's a fifth. And what you want to do then is you create all that content and you hit uh, either preview or save or show changes or whatever. And then you'll see that it automatically created the table of contents for you. So if you if you create the uh, the headings properly and, and you know you want that to be the structure of your page, anybody who's written term papers in the last 20 years is probably familiar with that. Uh, it'll take all the headings for you and it'll create an outline. It'll label it in a little box that says table of contents and it'll throw it to the top of the page. So you don't have to maintain that at all. It'll automatically do that for you. So this, Chris, this software is pretty smart. So if I want to do an organized list or, or, or use a heading like for uh, my, uh, you know, my CSPs that I'm looking for, my needs list or or my order the air lodges I'm looking for, that would be the heading, and then I would just put the content under there and come back out and do another heading for my OA right. lodge. That is pretty right. pretty smart. So that's, that's and really cool. while while you're working on the content, you may say, well, how do I do a list, or how do I do an outline, or how do I do, you know, whatever. And if you go back to the front page, the the main page, somewhere in there is a link that says check out our handy cheat sheet, 
And what this will do is it will take you to a page. We've, we've sort of covered this before, but it will show you if you can't see the buttons or you don't want to use the buttons, it will show you how to create italic text or it will show you how to create bold text or a link or, or if you've got something that you're trying to enter it as text and the software sees it and tries to do some formatting to it, it will show you how to work around that. Um, it will show you, if you don't understand me talking, it will show you how to do all of the... Uh, the headings of different sizes, and it'll show you the different kinds of lists and everything else. It'll show you how to embed an image. So the idea is that everything you want to do in an article will be on this cheat sheet. And if there's something you know that you don't know how to do, you email me, and I'll figure out how to do it, and I'll put it on the cheat sheet. Great. All right. Thanks, Chris. What What is someone? Let's say someone um, is listening to this, and they're going through doing what you say, and they search, and they don't find what they're looking for, so they decide to create a page, and they along the process, wherever it is, they just kind of get stumped, and they don't know exactly what to do. What's the best uh, way to find help or, or to get someone to help them out? Well, the, there's always the tried and true method. You can email me. Uh, that's chris at clothtalk.com. Or if you go to the cheat sheet, there will be a – I'm fixing to put it on the cheat sheet, actually. There's a, a little thing that says help me with some curly braces around it. And you can just copy that and paste it into your article. And it will put a big banner across the page that says, I need help. And below that, you type your question. And it will add that page to a list of, of pages or people who need help. And within a few hours, usually, Ben or I will see that. And we'll hop on over there and post a note that how can we help you? And, and if you've already posted your question, we'll do what we can to help you. Uh, and if you don't get what you want there, just like I said, email me and irritate us and bug us. And we'll eventually get around to exactly what you need. And we'll help you exactly how you need to be helped. All right, cool, thanks. And and definitely Chris is probably the expert on everything about the wiki. I, I try to catch up to his expertise as much as I can. So send him an email, Chris, at scouthistory.net or at clothtalk.com, or you can get me at ben at clothtalk.com uh, as well. Um, and we will help you out as much as we can because we need your help. Um, so uh, check it out. Uh, if you get stumped, Send us an email um, and let us know what you think. Chris has been giving us uh, a lot of good tips on the wiki. Let me tell you real quick a couple of tips for using the web page. I guess uh, I'm, if there's any way to mess something up or, or, or make it not work, I'm the first person that can do that. So Ben was kind of excited when we first got this web page going. He said, go go look at this and click here and listen to the music and or listen to the show. And I clicked on it, and then I clicked on a patch, and the audio stopped. So to avoid that, there's a couple of things you can do. One is um, choose what kind of podcast or, or downlink uh, download you want to listen to. If it's an MP3, that's fine. There's one that's called Play and Pop-Up. If you want to, say, uh, surf eBay while you listen to us, you can click on Play and Pop-Up, and that's going to open another smaller window with the player in it. So as you surf or as you look at the images as we talk about them, the audio continues. If you get a phone call or whatever, you can reach over there and push pause, and it'll, it'll just pause for a moment. Or if you've got to go eat dinner or whatever, you can pause it, come back, and pick up where you left off. Also, there's uh, something called an enhanced podcast. Uh, the enhanced podcast really does require quick time, and what it does is it plays back, once again, in a pop-up window, and as it plays back, the images change to whatever we're talking about. 
so you don't have to constantly sort of go back to the home page to see what's going on. The images actually change. And that's a, a function of uh, that particular style of encoding it. And it's uh, a QuickTime. A QuickTime is a free download uh, from Apple, and you can get it for your, uh, for your Mac or for Windows. Uh, also, you can right-click on those uh, different forms of uh, Cloth Talk, whether it's MP3 or the Enhanced Podcast. You can right-click on it and select Download the file, and it'll download it to your computer, and then you can use your favorite playback system, whatever it is. If it's Windows, it might be Windows Media, uh, media Player, or it could even be iTunes uh, and uh, or, or um, uh, QuickTime. So there's at least three different ways to listen to it. Also, if you're listening to me through dial-up instead of broadband or high-speed, if you look over there on the right-hand, left-hand side, there's something that says Dial-Up Friendly Shows. They're not the best quality. They'll come down across the telephone line really quick, and you can still follow what's going on. So there's a couple of uh, really good tips on uh, how to use the website to listen to Cloth Talk. And uh, Ben, you, you were going to tell us how to sign up for that newsletter. Yeah, it's really easy. Um, there's there's a few links on on every page of the Cloth Talk website. Uh, it, once you go through clothtalk.com and click on the little CT merit badge there on the right hand side, um, if on the very top right of the page there's a little link that says newsletter, and you can just click on that, and that'll take you to a place where you can put in your email address. Also, on every page on the left hand side at the bottom of the the navigation uh, menu there is a little box, uh, a little field where you can type. Type in your email address and hit enter or click submit below it. And it'll pop up a little window that's like verify your email address uh, and your, you know, do you want to sign up for the e-newsletter? And when you click yes, what happens is we're not going to send you spam. That's what doesn't happen. We're not spammers undercover. Uh, what does happen is every two weeks when we post a new episode of Cloth Talk, you'll get a brief email in your inbox that says, hey, there's a new episode of Cloth Talk, and it has the show notes in there. You can read about it, and you can click right in that email, and it'll bring up the Cloth Talk page, and you can listen to the episode, the brand-new episode, uh, right there on the page um, when it's fresh and new, and uh, and that way you don't have to remember that there's a new episode every two weeks. Uh, another way to subscribe to the show is through iTunes. You can just search for it. Uh, just type in Cloth Talk. And last time I checked, we were the top of the list uh, for that search. And uh, that that's another easy way to do it. Or if, if you don't want the email, you don't want to mess with iTunes or some other uh, podcasting software, you can just check the website every two weeks. But if you're like me, I'm kind of forgetful. So it's nice to have those reminders uh, in iTunes if you're subscribed to that or uh, in, in my email inbox uh, every time there's a new episode. Um, and as always, if you have trouble listening to the show, send us an email, clothtalk at clothtalk.com, and we will be eager to help you uh, uh, figure it out and, and so you can be a listener. So um, uh, if you have any questions, definitely send us an email. Uh, otherwise, I hope to uh, have you as a listener. Ben, the other day I was surfing on eBay and I came across a listing that had a button at the bottom. I was kind of amazed. It said, I listen to Cloth Talk, you should too. And I thought, well, I'll click on that and see what happens. Took me to the Cloth Talk page. If I have an eBay auction and I wanted to say that I listen to, to Cloth Talk, how do I do that? That's a good question, Tim. And, and a lot of times people are always asking, well, what can I do? 
to help out the Scout History Project or Cloth Talk? Well, the best answer is to tell everyone you know who collects uh, about the show, um, because the best the best way to spread the word is for you to tell people that you know and them to tell uh, other people. Um, and everyone knows that all the collectors of scouting memorabilia are always on eBay. Um, and so what better place to spread the word? Um, and we have a page on our website uh, that says eBay, uh, a link on the, on the menu there. And you can click on that, and there's a little text box with, with um some HTML uh, web page code in there that you can highlight, and you can just paste that into an eBay uh, description when you're creating the listing. And what it will do is it'll automatically put a little button uh, at the bottom of your eBay auction. Uh, and if you if someone were to and the button says "I listen to Cloth Talk," you should too. And if they click on it, it brings them right to our website, and um, that's a great way to support us and also spread the word about Cloth Talk and uh, and let other people know. So if you do that. That'd be great. If you if you try it and you run into problems, uh, just send us an email, clothtalk at clothtalk.com, and we'll be eager to help you out there. Well, with me online is uh, Mitch Reese. Uh, Mitch is uh, one of the experts in the area of uh, collectibles when it comes to the uniforms and the Alone Scout program. He is uh, currently with the uh, Connecticut Rivers Council. Uh, he has uh, grown up in scouting. Uh, he's an Eagle Scout, been an assistant scoutmaster, uh, roundtable commissioner, worked with the OA, just done uh, kind of like the whole nine yards with scouting. Also here online with us is Ben Killen and Matt Sheets and Chris Brightwell. Welcome, guys. It's kind of unusual for everyone to be here at the same time, but uh, Mitch, welcome to um, uh, Cloth Talk. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, I'm setting at uh, Mitch's website, which is uh, uh, http colon slash slash mitchreese.com. That's M-I-T-C-H-R-E-I-S dot com. And I happen to be setting at the page slash BSA books dot htm. Uh, Mitch, uh, I'm just amazed at the uh, uh, amount of uh, information out there that you have uh, compiled and put together over the years. How on earth did you get started in collecting and specialize in uniforms? I started collecting uh, at the 1991 NOAC. I'm sorry, 1981 NOAC. I had gone down with a group of friends, and we stopped at the NOAC, and on the way down, we could stop at the National Jamboree because they were both running at the same time. And started doing a little bit of patch trading, like most people do at a NOAC. And then the next year, decided that, hey, that was a lot of fun. Let me go to a National Eagle Scout Association conference. So while I was there, I had uh, met up with a couple gentlemen who said, hey, have you ever been to a scout tradery? And I said, no. So they took me over to my first tradery down in, uh, somewhere down in Georgia, and kind of got real interested in the old handbooks and the old rank and insignia type stuff. So that's what kind of got me started, started running around to the flea markets and tag sales and trying to pick up as much of the old historical stuff as I could. And back in the 80s, I decided that it was time to start writing a little bit and doing some more research on some of the different avenues. So published my first book, The Boy Scouts During 
World War One and World War Two, and talked all about the service projects and the awards that the scouts were involved with then. And that kind of led into a little bit of experience with writing. And in 1988, I put out my book that's probably my best-selling book, which is my guide to dating Boy Scouts of America, badges, uniforms, and insignia, which was the first attempt to try to categorize and organize how things came and changed and how the badges and the medals and the uniforms started changing over the years. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, pretty extensive. Uh, I see here it says it's uh, over 186 uh, 86 pages. Wow. Right now it is. Yeah. The, it started off as a little 50-page book, and people loved it because, again, it was it was the first attempt to try to organize the uniform stuff into some uniform and insignia into some way that you could all of a sudden pick up an old uniform and try to figure out how old it is, or you were doing a display and you were trying to do something for a troop's 50th anniversary and you wanted to try to get authentic stuff from when the troop first started. So being able to try to piece some of that together and be able to build those displays and it really started off as my notes as a way to try to figure out what I had and kind of over the years it was rewritten again in 1990 where we added about another 20-30 pages to it and totally overhauled in 2000, where we brought it up to about 180 pages, 170 pages, and went through, did a whole lot of custom scanning at the time. I mean, the whole. Tell us some of your, uh, some of the stories that you found, the discoveries that you found as you've done through this. And, and, you know, one thing I do, I, I look at some of the older uniform pieces and stuff that I see go across you, uh, eBay, and, I'm always just amazed at, at, at what's out there. Uh, in your journeys through this material, you must have found some real treasures. Oh, yeah. I mean, over the years, it's, again, you used to be able to go out to the flea markets and the tag sales, more so the old flea markets, and pick up early teens uniforms sitting there just dripping off with badges and the like. Because in the olden days, your uniforms were all like a military high they're patterned after the military high collared doughboy uniform so they were extremely uncomfortable but it was a it was a jacket with four pockets on it a real high neck collar and all the badges were worn down on the sleeve ah. so they've kind of changed a little bit over the years it wasn't until into the 1920s that they decided to make it a little bit more comfortable and they went from the high collar to more of a v-neck Pipe jacket. Okay. Now, again, they still had shirts and uh, the breeches or shorts from relatively early on, depending upon the part of the country you were. Up here in New England, most of the kids wore the jackets and the, uh, the breeches. If you were down in Florida, you'd have a tendency to have them a lot more in the, uh, the shirts or the short sleeve shirts and the shorts. Right, right. Uh, that that kind of makes sense from the uh, extreme conditions. So uh, the original manufacturers, uh, did they, that must have been uh, something to keep up with, uh, discover all the original manufacturers and, and try to put some sequence to this material. How, how did you, how were you able to establish that? 
Yeah, luckily there weren't all that many manufacturers of the real early uniforms. The first company they used in from 1910 to 1932 was a company called the Eisner Company. They were in Red Bank, New Jersey, and they were one of the largest manufacturers of military and all types of uniforms for military schools and mm. private institutions. Uh, and they had kept they won the contract and basically were the exclusive distributor and manufacturer. So they would set up a series of stores throughout the country that would carry their product. The Boy Scouts would uh, give them the regulations and the requirements and what they wanted the uniform to look like. They would manufacture them, sell them through the stores, and the Boy Scouts got a cut of everything they sold. And in 19... 32, I mean, actually, throughout the, the 20s and 30s, the Boy Scouts would send out for bid every once in a while to see if somebody could do it better or cheaper, and the Eisner Company kept winning out, so they kept getting the contract. <laughs> okay. In 1932, the Boy Scouts had a, went through and they did a major advertising for and all the trade papers to say, hey, we're looking for bid again on the carry our Boy Scout uniforms. And this time, a company named called Sweetor won out and kind of knocked Eisner out of the the game after 20-some-odd years of manufacturing for them. Hmm. And at that time, they were awarded a five-year contract. So over the next five years, the Sweetor company would made the uniforms, distributed the uniforms, uh, one of the big things about Sweetor was they kept advertising their unbelievable quality. <laughs> so they would go through and hold public tug-of-wars using their breeches in place of rope. <laughs> That's great. So they, they'd, they'd go ahead and they'd, you'd, a troop or a patrol would would register for this. They'd get the local media to come down and in front go out in front of the local... G Fox store or whatever the local little distributor was in that particular town and they'd have a six boy tug of war. The first boy on each side of the, on each leg could hold on to the the breeches. The next two behind them could just hold on to the boy in front of them and without jerking they had to try to pull it apart and see if they could rip them. Hmm. If they could rip them, every boy got a free pair. Wow. And what I've been able to read through some of the old salesmen's catalogs and the like, they did not give away a whole lot of free pair of breeches. <laughs> I wonder if the, that, that those latest cargo-style kind of uh, pants could uh, stand that test. I kind of doubt it. <laughs> Me too. I don't think they make the quality quite the way they do in any clothes, never mind just the Boy Scout uniforms, but... Overall, manufacturing was a little bit different. Again, the Boy Scout early breeches were made out of a very heavy-duty canvas type of cotton material, and the stitching that the Boy Scouts required on these things was extreme. I mean, they had some very, very detailed requirements on how they wanted the uh, uniforms made and the, it was going to be triple stitched here and double stitched here and hemmed over here and flipped over there just to give it their ungodly strength so that they you bought, bought a pair of those things, you could run around the woods with them, use them 
day in, day out, and not have to worry about them ripping on you. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's uh, sometimes I wish we had a little more quality control these days. One of the interesting things was back in the 30s during the Depression, the Boy Scouts had a real problem with counterfeit uniforms. What had happened is in certain parts of the country, local manufacturers decided that they could make a uniform that was much cheaper than what the Boy Scouts were selling by cutting back on the quality. And then they went to their local distributors and said, hey, carry my uniform, and instead of it being three or four dollars, you can get mine for a buck and a half <laughs> and make a little bit more profit on it. And when the Boy Scouts caught wind of that, they went sent letters to all their distributors telling them how they were under commitment with the Boy Scouts for it, and it wasn't right to sell things that weren't of the right quality or came from other areas, and basically threatened them that if they did not cease and desist, they would lose their their contracts. Sure. Did did these uh, companies actually put the uh, BSA logo, the Fleur de Lis, and all on their material? I don't know. My guess is probably not. But again, the early uniform, other than the pocket strip, really didn't say a whole lot. It was just a khaki-colored shirt and pants, oh, yeah. shirt and breeches at the time. Okay. Khaki, you're actually back then, it would have been more of a tan color. But it really didn't have a whole lot to to make it unique and to the average boy who was buying a uniform they didn't really care so they had issues or articles in scouting magazine telling the scoutmasters to be aware of fake uniforms and if you see them to contact your local council so that national could then contact these companies and make them stop selling it right right and they were very concerned more than anything else with the quality they wanted their stuff to be the best quality that it possibly could be. And for the best quality, you normally paid a premium price. Sure. sure. Or at least paid, paid some some type of higher price than you could if you bought lower or inferior quality stuff. Wow. Uh, how many books do you uh, currently have for sale if someone wanted to make an order from you? I, I, I see possibly at least I actually three, have five books that are current other than one of them is temporarily out of print. My Lone Scout book, The History of the Lone Scouts Through His Memorabilia, is temporarily out of print right now. If I start, if people are interested in it, by all means, contact me, and if I start getting enough interest in it, I will definitely get it back in print. Yeah. It's just that we, we ran out of that one, and that one was done by a different printer, so trying to put it back in print will take a little bit of time. I mean, I have all the files, but we have, we have to do a fair amount of conversion for it, where the other books, the history of the Boy Scout uniform, which is the brand new one that I just came out with, is totally in print and available. They say, they, the sales have been going fantastic on it, so I think people like to find out about the old uniforms, both the collectors and non-collectors. An awful lot of them are going to people who are just interested in interested scouters who say, hey, this is cool, or it's an OA collector who looks and says, man, I don't know anything about uniforms. Let me find out some of the how they've changed over the years. Let me find out some about the manufacturers and the like. Right. Uh, the other of my best-selling book is the Guide to Dating and Identifying Badges, Uniforms, and Insignia, the third edition of that book. And that one takes a little bit different approach where the history of the Boy Scout uniform 
is everything you wanted to know about a uniform without getting into unduly details on the stuff. I mean, we don't necessarily get into, okay, this one was used in 1921 through 23, and this is how it changed in 24, and this is how it changed in 25, when you're looking at it saying, hey, the pocket is three inches wide versus two inches wide, and the real nitty-gritty, what it does is the uniform book really concentrates on a decade-by-decade what it looks like in the teens, what it looked like in the 20s, what it looked like in the 30s, so on. I see. I where, see. where the uniform and insignia book covers the uniforms and through a little bit more detail, like if I get an old uniform, exactly how can I date it and figure out when it was from, but then covers, has hundreds of pages that talk all about the rank badges and uh, position badges and special awards and how the... Hmm life-saving medals have changed and how the Scoutmaster patch has changed over the years. I see. So again, that one is much more geared for the collector who wants to start collecting insignia uniforms or somebody trying to build those real authentic displays. Right, okay. So off the top of your head and just to the casual observer, uh, and let's stick with the Boy Scout uniform proper, I guess the classic Boy Scout uniform. How many, how many different styles would I, my untrained eye see from the beginning to the end, uh, or to okay, the present here. uniform? If you take some the real basics, I mean, in the teens, you had the high-collar jacket with a pair of breeches. Mm-hmm. In the 20s, it went to more of a V-neck jacket, again, with the breeches, 30s and 40s, your jacket started getting phased out. You had a lot more wearing the uh, tan shirt with metal buttons and a pair of breeches. When we got into the 40s was the first introduction of actual long pants for boys. Ah. Scoutmasters had an option to wear slacks or trousers, but the boys' uniform was really breeches up until the 40s. They kind of At that point, they switched to that. And the 40s also brought in the introduction of the overseas or that flat cap that a lot of us had back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Right. Where prior to that, the only official hat was the big campaign hat. Mm-hmm. Okay. And things pretty much stayed the same. And in the 40s, when you got into the 50s and 60s, your um, material changed some, so you got more into a khaki color versus a... Uh, tannish color uh, and the material the the material got a little bit lighter they started playing with different uh, manufacturing techniques you get into the 70s you started getting introduced with the polyester blends coming in there 70s brought in a whole lot of new hat wear when they totally redesigned the whole scouting program in 72 they came in with things like the first time of seeing like a baseball type cap mm-hmm. became popular. The red beret, or as I refer to it, the god awful red beret. <laughs> <laughs> the red berets looked good on about three kids in the troop. Yeah. And those were the ones that everybody wanted it, and those kids always looked great on it. And then you had people like myself that looked horrible <laughs> in that red beret. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But if the troop picked that as the hat, that's what you wore. Yeah. And. They, in the 70s, they introduced the 
option of wearing a neckerchief. It always was that during the summer you might not wear it, but during the winter the uniforms always, you wore the neckerchief. And when you got into the, the 70s, they started giving the troops a lot more options. You want to wear bolo ties instead of neckerchiefs. You just want to leave it open collar. You can do it different ways. Right, right. The cha- uniform was totally redesigned in the early 80s when they introduced the light tan colored shirt with the dark greenish or not it's a uh, greenish color pants slacks like they're doing they use today right right it wasn't the forest green that the explorers used but it was a it's that darker green color and the epaulet or the shoulder tabs and the epaulets right on there that came out in the 80s and stayed through that was the oscar de la renta Designed uniform. Yeah, that's what I thought. I knew someone famous had uh, actually designed that. Yep. Oscar De Laurentiis spent a lot of time and with the Boy Scouts trying to help them design it. And in some cases, I mean, they were talking about how much better the uniform was going to be because they made it out of slightly better material, slightly heavier material than they used in the seventies, and it was supposed to be more stain resistant and alike. And that's pretty much what we've had all along up until last year when the Boy Scouts finally looked and said, we want to, let's come up with the little things that are a little bit more practical and came up with what they call their switchbacks, which are their brand new, they're basically a very soft, they feel like cotton, but they're really a nylon slack where you can zip off the legs and now you have shorts. Right. And you can zip them back on and you have pants again yeah yeah they're the that type of thing that the campers anyone who's done any camping or done any stuff in warmer weather have been wearing those things for years because they've been the high tech super quick dries right right really nice pants of course if if it was me at at summer camp as a kid i would have lost one leg at least you know oh i'm just waiting to see them turn (laughs) cell replacement legs because that's gonna be the biggest thing if you if you kid takes it off before he leaves the house, you stand a fighting chance. <laughs> if he's hot out in the woods somewhere or hot, hot at camp and zips those, zips those things off, you know that he's coming home with one long leg and one short. Right. They'll join the company of socks, you know. Socks uh, yeah. always just one is around when you need it, not not a pair of them. Well, that's uh, that's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and the, the new pants really are functional, and they look, uh, they look great as far as a activity uniform when it comes to dress i guess i'm a little old-fashioned they still don't look quite as sharp but i'm they're not gonna, not, i'm not gonna plan, complain yeah. yeah they're not quite as sharp as a as a nice pair of cotton pants but when you look at look at the number of troops who you're lucky if you get the boys in a shirt and a pair of jeans it looks a whole lot better yeah and they're the type of pants where again they're so comfortable and they're so practical I mean, I think the thought is that, okay, get mom to buy one pair of pants, and that's good for the summer and the winter, and yeah. be able to stand a fighting chance of getting the kids to, to wear something. I mean, I think it's so nice that the Boy Scouts are finally looking and saying, okay, what is state-of-the-art <laughs> exactly. design, and what can we do to make it so the kid doesn't feel like a geek walking around in a Boy Scout uniform? Right, right. Um the scouts must have had uh, some kind of control. I mean, it, it's a uniform service. It's always been kind of uh, to you know to set yourself apart from uh, other clubs and organizations. Uh, how did this work in the early days? 
the whole idea of the uniform was one that you didn't have to have a uniform to be a Boy Scout, but the uniform kind of was always designed to make the kid feel like he's part of something bigger. It's one of those ways where you got poor kids, you got rich kids, they're all wearing the same uniform. And it was always designed as a way to kind of bridge that gap, making the kid feel like he is part of a bigger bigger entity, bigger than his patrol, bigger than his troop, bigger than his council. He's part of that big national movement. Yeah, it still works that way. You go to you mentioned Jamborees or Noacs, and you might be talking to a United States uh, member of the House of Representatives or a doctor or a lawyer, and they're all, they all look the same. I mean, everybody looks the same. You you do not know, uh, you know, whether that person is wealthy or you know dirt street poor because we're all uniformed, and that's that's fairly fascinating. Yeah, one thing I was I was wanting to ask. Well, first of all, I I did not realize that Oscar De Laurentiis. I actually uh, helped to design one of the uniforms. I did not know that. That's that's pretty cool. I work at a, a magazine here in New York. Wait till I tell some of the people in the uh, fashion design <laughs> section of the magazine about that. So, actually, if you go buy a female scarf right now for the female Cub Scout or Boy Scout leaders, it's actually signed Oscar De Laurenta. Wow. They have a silk scarf with a – it'd be green, red, and yellow for Boy Scouts or basically blue and yellow – I think there's some white and a couple other colors in it for the Cub Scouts that actually, if you look right along the border, it's actually signed Oscar de Laurenta. Ah, well, that is very interesting. I did not know that. But speaking of, of those, uh, those those neckerchief scarves, I was we had talked about it several episodes ago with Dr. Flat talking about his Order of the Arrow neckerchief collection, and we kind of drew a blank as to where the neckerchief originated from or or where it started from i mean i don't to my knowledge you don't really see it many places outside of scouting but do you have any insight as far as where that started or why it started anything i can like tell that? you a little bit about the way the boy scouts advertised it back in the 1910 handbook even started talking about a scarf and they kind of talked about and when you got into, like, 1911, 1912, they started talking about the scarf. It was something that you'd go down. They, you can buy it at your local five-and-dime store or hardware store. And it was more of a practical type of thing that they had gone with. I mean, it wasn't necessarily something that you had to wear on the uniform. It wasn't required. But it was more of a practical thing. You're out working. You can put it across your face for dust and like and starting in 1914 they actually pictured them in the catalogs with a little note saying they weren't available yet and it was about 1916 when the boy scouts really started selling them when you got into the teens and 20s they really pushed it as a piece of extremely extremely useful equipment and they had used those things for everything from they started showing pictures of using it for all types of bandages, using it for signaling, using a couple of them for lashing, using them for a smoke-type mask, where if you were going in trying to rescue somebody, uh, again, using it as a rescue rope even. I mean, they went, went out of their way to make sure these things were extremely strong, well-made materials, and they used to actually list hundreds of uses 
for the neckerchief. A funny story was, as I was working on the book, I wrote out to some people and said, hey, can you tell me any funny uniform stories? And one of the guys wrote me back and said, in his summer camp, they used to have a poster that said you could tie two neckerchiefs together to make a bathing suit. <laughs> the funny thing was, when he turned around and started thinking about it, he says, man, I would never loan my neckerchief to somebody for that purpose. I would never wear mine again if I loaned it to somebody for that purpose. I would never ask anybody to borrow theirs to use for that. And even if I had two neckerchiefs, I would die of embarrassment before I'd go out with such a revealing outfit. <laughs> and when I heard that, it was like so perfect. <laughs> Here it is, some Boy Scout. Somebody came up with this great idea to say, hey, you can tie two of them together and make something like that. And then you had some real-life scout looking at it saying, not me. I'm not running around with that loincloth on. There you go, Matt. There's the new uniform for the wife. The other funny story I heard was from a real good friend of mine. He reminded me of in back in the 60s and 70s, the uniform was made out of cotton. When he got into the later 70s, it became more of a polyester, but the older uniforms were heavy cotton. And what happens, you're a little kid, and you, you buy the uniform. Mom isn't going to make it when fit exactly. She's going to take all that extra material and tuck it up into the leg. So if you grow, you're all set. And if the waist is too big, she's going to take in the waist. Or you figure you'll grow into it which is fine. You have that material, and every week she'd wash the uniform and she'd iron it. And then you finally grew a few inches. So now now Mom had to let down some of the material. So what do you have? You have a very a stripe down on the bottom. You have a lighter material on the outside, darker material that was tucked inside, and that nice crease mark that's been dragging on the floor for the last six months now gives you a stripe. A couple months later, you grow again, she lengthens it again. So it was real common on those really old uniforms of this back in the 60s to watch a kid and see two or three stripes down on the legs. He says, that's not too bad. But as soon as you got to the point of having to let out the waist, <laughs> now you had a dark green stripe going right down the middle of your butt. <laughs> yeah, uh, you're making me feel and any of really us that old. Wore those uniforms know exactly what he's talking about. Yeah, you're making me real feel really old. I uh, found some of my old uniforms, and my first Cub Scout uniform was uh, one of the uh, small. Of course, it's small, but it had the yellow piping around the button-down flaps on the pants. Yeah, uh, and uh, I kind of looked at those, and uh, what you described is exactly the state of those of, that, of those uniform pants. <laughs> you see them all the time where they've it's been like... extended and extended and extended, and it's just again it was the old cotton, heavy duty cotton that was just you ironed it, you starched it, you tried to make it look good, and it didn't hold the color like real well, and as it was washed and faded, and it changed. <laughs> it's like it's like rings on a tree or something, like growth rings on a tree. It's like, yep. how long has this person been in scouting? <laughs> uh, and if you had a family where you had little Johnny and Bobby and uh, little Tommy, you better believe the pants went up and down and <laughs> kept going until they were ripped 
beyond repair. I mean, I've seen them with more chunks of fabrics put in into the knee on some of them. I've had some of them that are two or three thick. Oh, yeah. Trying to do that. I mean, you're running around, you slip, you rip. Your mom bought those great old iron-on uh, patches, and guess what you got? That's right. <laughs> and, of course, the uniform shirt, by the time you got all your badges and everything on it, that was a lot of work. And, and you know, to, to redo that, it's just always a constant uh, kind of maintenance. Or here, you know, put my latest event or activity patch on there. And, uh, yeah, I can I remember those days and it for was, sure. It was way worse in the early years because all your badges were worn on the sleeve of the uniform jacket. So you'd have rows of the badges on the sleeve... You outgrew the uniform, so typically what mom did is she cut the sleeve off the old jacket and either put and then stitched it onto the new one. <laughs> yeah. Either, okay. either that or if you were wearing it to uh, out in the woods and you ripped it up, she'd cut it off and then put it on with snaps yeah. or pins so that you you could take it on and off while you washed it. You could take it on and off while you were outside because it wasn't until the 1924 Jamboree when they officially came out with a merit badge sash. I was going to ask that because when I was a scout, it seems like some of the older scouts uh, did wear merit badges. I think you could wear up to six of them or something like that on your sleeve. But then that is correct. there was the merit badge sash. When That was adopted in 24. The sash was created in 1924 officially. Before that, there were some private issues. There were some moms that would do stuff like that. But the real sash came out in 19... 1924, for the U.S. contingent to the World Jamboree. Wow. And basically what it was is in the 1920 Jamboree, the Boy Scouts looked good, but when they went to the 24 Jamboree, now that they had a Jamboree under the belt, they wanted to make the Boy Scouts of America look way above everybody else. So they made these, basically, they made custom uniforms for the kids, and they made these beautiful custom merit badge sashes. Hmm. What they did is they went ahead and they started with a piece, that's what I can describe it, start with a piece of backing material, go get all the badges that the kid earned, sew them all together into a piece, and then take the edges of your backing material, roll it over onto the front of the badges so they almost look like they were as part of the actual sash. I see. They would then sew a back piece on, make the sash so it wasn't the badge just sitting on top of the sash the badge was actually in embedded into the sash oh okay wow and they did those for the 24 jamborees for the kids and if the kid had earned a lot of badges they got a three wide and if they hadn't earned as many badges they gave them a two wide so the sash looked totally full <laughs> And it was designed specifically to make the Boy Scouts look as good as they could. Right after that, they started coming out with actual merit badge sashes available and changed the requirements saying you could, you could wear them. Yeah, this is one that I was, I kind of try to ask everybody that I meet. And I guess to give you a little bit of background, I'm, uh, let's see, what is it? It's the eighth Eagle Scout in three generations in my family. So, my cousins are Eagle Scouts. My dad made life, but his brothers made Eagle. And my grandfather made Eagle. So scouting in our family is something that we've sort of always done. And when I try to meet somebody who's as involved or is as, or is as dedicated or is as interested in scouting as we are, um, I always kind of try to figure out how exactly 
you came to be involved in scouting or how you came to be interested in scouting. And it was, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, uh, go ahead. It was one of these things where they had a group of kids in my school class who were all Cub Scouts, and I wanted to be a Cub Scout. Got involved. I was a little bit older at that point, and my birthday is in January, and I remember joining in, like, September, and the uh, den leader wouldn't let me earn my uh, bear badge because they said I didn't have enough time. And that got me all real upset. I mean, I got my little bobcat pin, but I couldn't get my my wolf or my bear because I didn't have enough time. Became a weeblo and said, I'm getting one for as many badges as I could. And got all close to, if not all, of the little weeblo's pins. Mm-hmm. At that point, and at least in our part of this the country, at least in my town, you had kids that belonged in the rich troops and kids that didn't. And the pack that fed our troop was mostly a lot of the rich kids, and I wasn't one of them. So they were, quote, full. Luckily, the troop across the town said, hey, okay, we'll take him in. He's not going to survive. <laughs> and I reminded my scoutmaster many, many times of those words that he told my dad when I got my eagle, when I got my two silver palms, when I became an assistant scoutmaster in the troop. When I, and for years and years to come, it's like, I think I proved you wrong. Nah, nah. <laughs> He'll know. That's great. Uh, Jack was the greatest of uh, scoutmasters. This, this guy was the most wonderful person you could ever imagine, and he did so much for the kids. But it was. One of those things that once I got in, kind of got stuck in, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like yeah, so many I, of us. And I think everybody on this call is pretty much, they got into it and never let go, so you're in good company. Okay, well, I, I have to ask the two signature questions, um, and it's something we ask every one of our guests, but that is, um, what... Like, uh, of all the things that you collect, what is one thing that's in your collection that is, that is like the most important to you or, or what, that has the greatest story or something like that? Just one piece that really kind of stands above the rest. And then the second part of the question would be, what is something, uh, out of all that you've collected that, that you're still uh, in search of, like a, a piece that's still out there, you know what it is, you, you know you want it, but you just haven't found it quite yet? I would say out of the whole collection, there's a couple types of things that if, God forbid, something, the household got destroyed and the whole collection got destroyed and I can only grab a couple things and run off with them, one of them would be some of my 1910 stuff because, again, that was the first year. So some of the 1910 handbooks, the uh, leather-bound handbook that was given out at the Baden-Powell dinner, my 1910 uniform and stuff along that line, just because that's the very starting of scouting. The other piece collection that I'm real, real proud of that's a key piece of my collection is my T.H. Foley stuff. T.H. Foley was the first manufacturer of pins and medals for the Boy Scouts, and over the years I've been able to piece together a beautiful accumulation of some of that type of stuff. I mean, I have a couple of the early... Eagle medal, T.H. Foley Eagle medals. I have a whole pile of the early life-saving medals 
that they came out with, and a lot of some of the pins and the jewelry that the company made. Interestingly enough, a number of years ago, I had gotten a call from a woman. It was a snowy, crummy day here in Connecticut. I had left work early, so I didn't have to deal with any of the driving out at night. Got home, and I get this call from the sweet little old lady saying, I have this whole pile of Boy Scout jewelry. And I'm thinking, no, lady, this isn't Boy Scout. It's just a generic flirtily. And she says, well, this one says be prepared on it for life-saving. And all of a sudden, my ears kind of perked up. So I drive out in this horrible, crappy weather to get to her house. And here is a box of a bunch of miscellaneous metals and junk. And in there is a life-saving metal. There's a couple really, really early huge Boy Scout pins in there, some other contest medals, and a whole pile of stuff. So I make this lady an offer that I thought was she was going to drop when I told her how much I was willing to give her for this pile of junk that she had. She was happy as can be. I get home with it, and I start going through it, and a bunch of the stuff in there was made from this T.H. Foley company. But I remember her telling me that the her sister-in-law had worked for a company called Standard Emblem Company in Rhode Island. I'm thinking, how the heck does she have all this Foley stuff if she worked for a company named Standard Emblem Company? Started doing some research and had some help from some of the couple of the great libraries over in Rhode Island. Found out that the Standard Emblem Company was owned by a Thomas Foley, out of New York. <laughs> so what appears to have happened is when the Foley company started off in 1911, and the last we know about them, they disappeared in about 1915. There had been rumor that the plant burned down. There was rumor that they went bankrupt. Nobody has been able to really piece together what happened to this Foley company. So at that point... Boy Scouts started using other companies like Deejus and Clufts to make stuff for them. And what it appears is that a couple years later, Mr. Foley went back to the Boy Scouts and said, Hey, I have a new company. I'm back in business. Let me make some stuff for you. At this point, the Eagle Medal was already being made by Deejus and Clufts, and some other stuff was. But they started sending stuff over to this standard emblem company to make stuff. And they had made a lot of the early collar brass was made by them. A lot of the contest medals were made by them. A whole lot of enameling type stuff. An awful lot of the stuff that you see back in the the metal type stuff, the pins and metals from the uh, 20s and early 30s were all made by this company. But nothing was ever marked by them because they did not stamp their stuff. And what it looks like is when the company folded after Mr. Foley died, the sister-in-law and somebody else continued to run the company. Back in the mid-30s, they switched more into doing fine enamel jewelry, precious metal enamel jewelry. And when in the 60s, when the woman died, the uh, brother had gone up and basically emptied out the vault, and here was this box of sample stuff that they had made. Wow. 
Wow. And one of those once-in-a-lifetime finds. Yeah. But more important was learning the history on it. Right. And the more I was able to research, and I talked to the lady a little bit more, and it, it seemed like the Foley company was based, out, or the Standard M company was based out of Rhode Island, but their sales office was in New York City. My guess is fairly close to the Boy Scout headquarters, and they had started making bits and pieces for the Boy Scouts for a number of years. Wow. What a story. What a find. Yeah, and that's a -a once-in-a-lifetime find. So going out on that snowy, crappy day, (laughs) I don't think my car touched, the wheels of my car touched the ground on the way home. I was just floating all the way home, stayed up till 3 or 4 in the morning (laughs) trying to go through what I had gotten. And it was all covered with this black soot because it had been sitting down in the basement for 20 years. <laughs> and just found some unbelievable pieces of scouting history sitting there. Is there a piece out there that you're still uh, after? Oh, yeah. Again, I click, because I collect all the old insignia and all the old medals and stuff, I mean, some of the key things I'm still looking for is a lot of the national level stuff, the stuff that would have gone to the Dan Beard, the James West, and I mean, national commissioner pieces and early chief scout pieces and international commissioner type stuff, and there was a lot of that, but it was just very, very few pieces made because it went out to a very select number of people, and I'm looking for that. I'm still looking for a lot of the early teen stuff, the early uh, scout commissioner pin and patch from the uh, early teens. I'm figuring one of these days when I hit one of these tag sales it's just going to be sitting there on the counter in a little box just waiting for me to get it. Yeah. Again, we can all wish. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about what about a piece from your personal scouting uh, that means a lot to you? Something that you did as a yeah, youth? Or... That would have, have to be my Eagle medal. Eagle, okay. It's in, the mid- it's in the middle of my displays, but my Eagle medal and my mirror badge slash are both okay. displayed in between all the other ones, but I know which ones they are. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's been great to have you with us. Uh, any, any closing comments, Mitch, or, or anyone? Now, again, I appreciate the chance to talk with you guys. What you're doing with these webcasts are fantastic. I mean, I had never really realized what you were doing with them until I started, sat down and listened to a couple of them after you contacted me to, to get on here, and it's, it's really, really nice what you're doing with them. Well, we appreciate it, Mitch, and it's, uh, you can find Mitch online at MitchReese.com. That's M-I-T-C-H-R-E-I-S.com. And that uh, that site has a wealth of uh, information on it and uh, how to get and get these uh, fine publications that uh, Mitch has produced for the uh, documenting the history of scouting and the history of the uniform. And uh, we certainly appreciate it, Mitch, and look forward to uh, seeing you uh, around uh, as we uh, all scout around sometime. Thank you so much for being with us, and uh, holiday greetings to you and your family. I'd really like to thank uh, Mitch Rice again for chatting with us. He brought us a really interesting overview of the history of the Boy Scouts of American uniforms and some of their insignia. And I think he also answered a question from a few episodes ago as to where did the neckerchief come from? Uh, It sounds like it's an extension of the Be Prepared motto. Uh, So once again, Mitch, thank you. Uh, I'd like to thank Daniel Hodge for music that you're probably hearing right now. 
uh, Daniel's done some great work for us, and we look forward to to hearing more of his stuff in the future. Uh, I'd like to thank Tim and Ben for all their help with the wiki and with this podcast and with keeping everything online, because I sure couldn't do it by myself. So uh, thanks, guys, and I look forward to doing another one. I'm Tim Hall for Ben Killen and Chris Brightwell. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again in a couple of weeks. This is Cloth Talk, bringing you the history of scouting through collectibles.